brought a bit of a hodgepodge. What I had, I mean, my, my sort of only qualification really for being here is that I wrote a book about living on the minimum wage, and it was about more than 10 years ago now, but I do think that certainly some of the experiences of the, of the people that I met along the way would still be very valid today, would still you know, be very similar to the experiences of you know, people working on those kinds of wage levels today. So uh, one of the things I wanted to do was just to read to you a few little bits about some of the women that I met and you know, the, the sort of texture of their lives. I think you know, it's quite interesting you know, in the context of this debate just to see how people do juggle all those issues about work and childcare and so on. Um, but uh, very fascinated that um, Sally's talk was uh, was about night cleaners because that was the first job that I did uh, at the Savoy. Um, as I, the, I did three jobs, and the first of those was working at the Savoy as a night cleaner. And I was absolutely fascinated by the sort of account that you gave of the women that you met because it sounded to me, I mean, I, you know, you obviously felt that they were very marginalised, and yet listening to you, I felt what stable lives they must have and what great support systems they must have that the women who do those jobs today, and they are still, not entirely women actually, but you know, still quite a few women, you know, probably more women than men doing those jobs, um, far, far more difficult for them to have the level of support actually today and to organise. One, because they're mostly recent migrants now and they haven't got their family structures around them in the way that probably the women you met would have done 40 years ago. Um, and the other is that they rarely stay in those jobs for more than a few weeks. So how could you organise them? How could you even go there and you know, expect to meet those women and get them organising and joining a, a trade union? It just wouldn't happen because you know, there might be, if, if you've been there eight or nine months, you're a veteran, basically. So, um, you know, I, th I think really interesting the, the way that, um, you know, at, at those kind of certainly the, the bottom end of the pay scale, um, people are more marginalised than they were 40 years ago, not less. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a whole sort of question, a very interesting question about um, the, um, <clears throat> was it Josie talked about the uh, trade, the trade, no, it was you, wasn't it? Um, talked about the trade union guy talking about having to establish a skill. The way I saw it when I was doing my book was about having to establish a differential in a way, that there are trade unions which, you know, which will get people a, a slightly better, very few trade union members will be working on minimum wage, I would have thought. Um, but it's about having that differential there and there are, there's this huge mass of people these days who are no way ever going to get unionised, um, who are you know, much more marginalised, I think, than they might have been in the past in terms of their communities, their family structures and support from organisations like trade unions. <clears throat> and um, I think it was Josie who talked about um, what, what was the phrase? Um, the, the, the local regimes of gender. And that was certainly one of the things I wanted to mention. The first place that I worked was London, obviously the Savoy. And, uh, you know, the sort of lives that people could live on them, because we have a national minimum wage, we have a, a regional living wage, we have a living wage for London, and we have a living wage outside of London, but we only have a minimum wage for, for the whole country. And that's just, just, just to show you the difference that... You know, if you're on minimum wage, you're on £6 odd an hour now, um, whereas the living wage outside London is £7.85, um, but inside London it's £9.15, I think it is. Um, and that, you know, that's something that actually makes a huge difference to people's lives. You know, when I went out to look for a job on the minimum wage, the Guardian actually phoned me up and said, you know, would you go and try and work, live on the minimum wage in London and see how that is? And my first reaction was, will there be any minimum wage jobs in London? Because I wasn't, you know, I thought maybe the employers couldn't get away with that in London. People wouldn't work for it. Nonsense. I went to Brixton Job Centre and there were probably, I think, half a dozen to a dozen jobs available that day. Um, <clears throat> 
which were, which were paying the minimum wage, and in fact weren't paying the minimum wage, because when you got down to it, you'd have to pay for your own clothing, um, your own shoes, and you'd be told, you know, you had to have a black skirt and a white blouse and black shoes and all this sort of things. You know, so that would cost you. There would be unpaid overtime, uh, which would just be extra hours on the end of the shift. Not, not a lot you could do about that if you wanted to get another shift the next night. Um, because you would have quite high, because you would be living on the, especially in London, you'd be living on the margins of the city, so you'd have very high travel expenses. And that meant that your working day was very long because you couldn't afford to get a tube. So you'd have to get a series of buses to get you in and out, <clears throat> which meant that even if you left your night cleaning job at seven o'clock in the morning, you might not get home till nine, and probably you'd be going on to another job, or you'd have childcare, or you'd be a student and you'd be going to college. You know, all those things you know, became more difficult because of the sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of way you had to live. So the first bit I was going to read you, uh, it's about a woman uh, I called Anna in the book. Uh, she's actually from Zimbabwe. And um, just, I mean, she was actually, she was the supervisor at the Savoy, and I, I didn't particularly get on with her because, you know, I think somebody you talked about issues with supervisors. You know, when you get that tiny, she had about 30p an hour extra, you know, to do this terrible job, and she still had to do all the cleaning, and it was miserable for her, you know. But she, she did have that kind of bit of a sense of, you know, I'm different from you, and I'm different from everybody else. Really, you know, and really interesting. And there's a comment from her in here which I thought, you know, really said it. There isn't much joy in Anna's life. <clears throat> she lives miles out on the fringes of East London, a bus journey which takes about an hour and a half. After she finishes college in the afternoon, she shops, cleans and tries to sleep. But often she comes to work without having been to bed at all. At break, she picks at her food listlessly and then pushes her plate aside before putting her head down on her arms and falling asleep. She worries about her family back home, which was Zimbabwe. And the only social life she seems to have consists of visits to her house from other Africans who live in London or who are passing through. She's often ill, sometimes with a cold, sometimes with a headache, once with a raging toothache which she refuses to have treated, possibly, I guess, because she fears the dentist spills. But she never misses work. To miss work would mean losing a night's pay. And that was a common theme with virtually everybody I met. You did not miss work because you just couldn't afford to. Every morning when she finishes her shift, Anna uses her mobile phone to call her boyfriend back home, make sure he's out of bed so he won't be late for work. Later in the day, he phones her to chat. And if there's worrying news from home, she'll borrow the day-old Daily Telegraph viper loan from reception each night to see if there's anything on the foreign pages. She hopes her boyfriend will join her soon. She hasn't been able to afford a visit home. And she scornfully rebuffs any approaches she receives from other men. Poor Amos, who lights upon almost every new female staff member as a potential girlfriend, seems to have had short shrift. He asked me out once, but I told him, what are you doing? Why would I go out with you when you're working as a cleaner? I just thought it was you know, really interesting. None of those people identified themselves as cleaners, actually. They were all students or, you know, they all had another life. But actually, after I'd stopped working at the Savoy, I moved on first to Yorkshire and then to Scotland, where I do have to say that experience was quite different because I was meeting people who had been born here, who had family support. They had, you know, you can't afford childcare. It's all very well talking about affordable childcare. If you're on minimum wage, you can't afford to pay for childcare. Either you have family who do it or you juggle. And there was one woman at the Savoy I worked with. Her husband had to leave home for work at seven in the morning. She finished work in central London at seven in the morning. They had a one-year-old child and she had to get home. She knew her child was alone during that hour, hour and a half that she was trying to travel home from central London. She would run out of that place, and sometimes we'd be held back. That we'd still work to do. You know, you're not going home. So we didn't go. We couldn't. And she would be virtually in tears quite often because she couldn't go home and she knew her child was, was alone. In Yorkshire, it was a bit different. There were a lot of the same 
sorts of issues, um, but um, but I think the family support was there. Most people, if they had, you know, they, they had a lot of juggling to do, but if you had children, you would try and, you know, get grandparents involved or, you know, you would have friends and, and share or, or something. It, it was easier, but having said that, I don't think it was easy. Um, this is Julie. Uh, with whom I worked on the production line in a pickle factory in Selby. And um, Julie had come from Selby. She'd actually been a nurse, and I think you know she was a single parent and had given up nursing because it was just too stressful and, and too difficult for her. And she thought production line work, at least the hours could be fairly regular, uh, and she'd be available for, for her teenager. I'd put Julie down as being in her early 50s, but in fact she's 44. I have this problem with a lot of the other workers, I don't know if it's the effect of smoking or heavy drinking or whether it's due to stress. Julie must have been married in her early 20s because her oldest son's 23 now. She's separated from her husband. She's bringing up her teenage daughter on her own. She used to be a nurse, but the stress got to her and she decided to do something that which wouldn't take so much out of her. But nothing stops Julie working. During our second week, she strains her shoulder stacking cartons and with a day, within a day or two, it's so inflamed you can see the lump through her overalls. The factory nurse sends her to the local hospital for a checkup, where she's told to rest. And does she? Does she echoes like, as they say around here? She's back on the production line within an hour, and though the supervisor puts her on labelling to prevent her making it worse, she's still rigid with pain. From time to time, she gets angry because something needs lifting and no one's doing it, so she does it herself. Then she has to turn away, biting her lip and hiding her face from the rest of us, so we can't see how she's suffering. She really, really wants to hold on to this job, she says. If she takes time off, she'll lose pay. But what worries her even more is that Temps are us, the agency we were all working for, will think she's a slacker and then she'll be sacked. And I have to say, that was one of the more humane places I worked. You know, they weren't all terrible employers. So actually, the one in London was pretty awful. The factory, I worked for an agency with the, which worked within the factory. And they were quite human, actually. But everybody was still terrified. Everybody knew that they didn't have job security. And there was this great system in the factory. I couldn't understand why everyone had a different coloured hat. And what it was, you know, if you were an agency colour worker, you had one colour of hat. You know, if you were female, you had a floppy hat. If you were male, you had a straight hat. If you were sort of one layer up, <coughs> which meant you were a permanent production line worker, you were employed by the factory, not the agency. And that gave you extra pay and extra status and extra security. You had yet, yet a different kind of hat. And it was all terribly important, these sort of deline delineations. And it wasn't everywhere I worked, actually. Status was incredibly important um, and, and a, you know, a real issue for people. And I think you know, about people's perceptions of themselves, it's quite easy to forget um, how we, we undervalue ourselves very quickly. I mean, I found it very, very striking. You know, I'd gone in to do this job as somebody who clearly had you know, an, another life, if you like. But within weeks, I was feeling you know, I really felt it, it kind of undermined my sense of self and self-confidence, and I, I did feel that for the people that I work with as well, that, you know, you, these jobs are very dehumanising, um, and the way that you have to do them is. Um, and the last, um, the last place I worked was, uh, we, you know, we're talking about caring roles and work that is particularly... In fact, I've not shown you any of my slides, and I was going to show you one about um, that the, the particularly... Oh, good. The low, particularly, where we have certain jobs which are women's jobs, and the third job that I did was, you know, really one of those jobs. It was a caring job. It was working in a, um, a care home, and that was the one place I worked where there were virtually no men working. There was one man who was actually married to the woman who I'm about to read to you about. Um, but if you look at the percentages of women in these, these are the lowest-paid sort of occupational areas. In every case, the majority. 
uh, of, of workers in those low-paid areas are men, are women rather. You look at the highest-paid jobs. There's only one category, legal professions, where actually the majority are women. Um, and in, in all the other cases, even the med even medicine, which I thought was interesting, um, I think that doesn't include nurses. It'll, it'll include doctors and um, other um, professionals, if you like, if you want for about want to a better word. Um, but you know, in virtually every case, the majority of workers in the higher paid jobs will be male. Um, and that was certainly the case in, in the care home where I worked in Scotland, um, where there was, I can't remember the size of the workforce, but there must have been 30 or 40 people working various different shifts in this home. And there was only one man among them. Um, and uh, all the rest of them, they were caring for you know, other people's relatives during the daytime, uh, or depending on what shift they were doing. And then they were going home and, and caring for their, for their own uh, children, parents, you know, in some cases as well. But they had their own caring responsibilities. Um, and I was going to read to you about, about Car uh, Shirley, um, who had, she actually was about to get married to Dave, who uh, also worked in the, in the care home, he was the only guy who did, and because they'd both been, um, you know, they were a little bit older and they had five children between them, there was a hell of a sort of operation going on to juggle the, the sort of hours that they did, because they both worked in the same place. Dave used to do the night shifts and Shirley used to do the day shifts and they used to swap over. But again, they had to leave the kids in the care of one of the other kids while they were doing the swap. Um, Shirley has a council house which she shares with her partner Dave. They have five children between them. Dave works at the Towers too. Just, uh, sorry, just Shirley's a comfortable motherly soul in her early 30s. She used to work as a cleaner but in this job she can do what she's best at which is caring for people. And the shifts allow her to see the kids at least once a day before they go off to school when they come, or when they come home in the afternoon. It isn't easy though. Shirley does days, Dave does nights. He looks after the youngest ones in the daytime while Shirley's at work. And you have to bear in mind they have to sleep as well, and they don't do that while they're at work. That means they barely see each other, except on their days off. It also means they have to snatch a few hours sleep whenever they can. One day, Shirley's late for work. She tells me she slept in because her little girl was wide awake at one in the morning. Dave let her, her the little girl, sleep too long during the day because he needed to sleep himself. I'm in awe of Dave and Shirley. How on earth did they, they get by on what they earn with five children, I wonder? They have a car in which Dave drops Shirley off if she's on a late shift, but she can't drive. And if she's on an early, she has to get a taxi to work. And they live the other side of town, this was Aberdeen. And there just wouldn't have been, you know, it would have been bus into town, bus out, that time of day when you're getting to work six, seven in the morning, which most of these jobs you are working very unsociable hours. You know, you're not really, the buses are difficult if you're outside of London. <coughs> if she's on a late, she has to get a taxi home. Their council house is on the other side of town and it costs her £7 every time. The only alternative is three buses. With early starts and late finishes, she just can't do it. The 15-year-old has to babysit while they're changing over shifts and she doesn't like to leave him with any responsibility for any longer than she has to. She tries to get a lift with one of the other carers when she can, but as often as not, she can't. She earns £28 a day and as often as not, a quarter of it goes on taxis. I work out... She and Dave take home about £15 a week, more than they'd get if they were on benefits. And if they were on benefits, they wouldn't be paying Shirley's taxi fares or the kids' school meals. One day at break, Shirley pushes her hand into the pocket of her tunic, and this is a bit before the days of Wonga, but um, similar thing. She pulls out a small brown envelope. Her expression says she's thinking of doing something she shouldn't. I'm wondering whether to post this off or not, she says. It turns out to be one of those ads credit companies send out in the post. Shirley already has £1,500 on her, on her existing credit card and she's up to her limit. Christmas is coming. 
with all those presents to buy, she can't really see much of an alternative to going further into debt. And that's one of the things. I don't know, you know, how that could be addressed by the Charter, but debt was a huge issue for people because they just, you know, most of the people I met, frankly, couldn't have a life. You know, they could exist, but they all wanted to have a life quite naturally. And um, I think that's something that's quite hard to legislate for. Anyway. Thank you very much.